0: sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk.
1: Never forget the guy who ran this investigation, Peter Strzok. Never forget what he said. Trump should lose 100 million to zero. We need an insurance policy. Told Lisa Page, don't worry, Lisa, we'll stop Trump. This is what Bill Barr wants to investigate.
2: (coughs) The man, uh... Had a brief summary of the report, released all the report that was legally allowed to be released, put it on the internet. To call a a public servant like the Attorney General a liar is completely over the top. And now, Stacey Washington.
3: Hey everybody, welcome to Stacey on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Head over to urbanfamilytalk.com, check out the conference materials you the agenda there. You're you are not going to want to miss this. It's going to be held at Hope Church down in Tupelo, Mississippi. And it's going to be a blast. So uh, you got to get on there and register and make sure that you save your spot so that you can hear the agenda and the program. You're not going to want to miss that. Um, and then also, this hour on the show, we're going to be chatting with Kenny Stein of the American Energy Alliance. About the Drive America Forward Act, which was introduced to Congress to expand the tax credit for electric vehicles. Boondoggle, <laughs> whenever you hear expand tax credit, your hackles should go up. You're thinking, so you're paying for something. They're giving tax credits to a business to encourage them to do something, which if they could do it in the private sector successfully, they'd already be doing it. You notice they don't have tax credits for Hobby Lobby or Chick-fil-A, and those companies have booming businesses. But, you know, Walmart doesn't get tax credits. No one's getting any tax credits. So why should electric vehicles get them? This is an awful idea. He's going to come on and explain the entire it, – it's just a scheme. He's going to explain it to us, and we're going to discuss it with him. And um, so now I, I've, I've I've always been of the mindset that um, – There's a reckoning that happens. um, And a lot of people have a lot of different names for it. Some people who are more secular call it karma. You know, us Christians sometimes refer to it as reaping and sowing. No one gets away with anything. And that's what's so interesting about uh, now, obviously, God's grace and his mercy that those those abound. And we are so we should be just utterly grateful to have access to God's grace and mercy. We, we never actually get everything that we deserve, which thank God for that. But that doesn't mean that people can act with impunity and not worry about the repercussions of their actions or being held to account. And so here we are um, with all of the failures in leadership in the FBI, which were outlined by AG Barr representative jordan actually gives a comprehensive list here he is in number one
1: he said three excuse me four very interesting things first he said there was a failure of leadership at the upper echelon term he used upper echelon of the fbi we all know that's the case director comey's been fired deputy director mccabe fired, lied three times under oath, according to the Inspector General. FBI counsel Jim Baker demoted and left, currently under investigation by the Justice Department. Lisa Page demoted and left. Peter Strzok, deputy head of counterintelligence, demoted and fired. Peter Strzok, the guy who ran the Clinton investigation and the Russian investigation. There was certainly a failure of leadership at the upper echelon of the FBI. Second thing the Attorney General said three and a half weeks ago in front of the Senate Finance Committee, Spying did occur, said it twice, yes, spying did occur. Third, he said, there's a basis for my concern about the spying that took place. And maybe the most interesting thing, two terms he used that frankly I find frightening. He said there was, in his judgment, he thinks there may have been unauthorized surveillance and political surveillance, scary terms. We gotta go back to January 3rd, 2017. Senator Schumer on the Rachel Maddow show talking about then president elect Trump says this, if you take on the intelligence community, they have six ways from Sunday at getting back at you.
3: Six ways from Sunday. And this is before then candidate Trump ever took on the intelligence community. This was after he became president and he realized that there was some, uh, wrongdoings afoot, that the game was afoot, as they like to say in in, uh, some of the the murder mysteries. He actually was just beginning to kind of become cognizant of exactly what was happening to him, not just in the campaign, but as the president. He realized that when he said it was a swamp and that there was a deep state, he kind of was underestimating the breadth and depth of that entity. And so as he began to make comments, you know, and and this was, of course, all around the time that uh, he ended up firing James Comey. And then after when he realized they were arrayed against him and had been. And they were going even deeper into the Trump world activities, looking, searching, trying desperately to uh, to find something to dig up some dirt, which is still what they're doing. The Senate Intelligence Committee has actually, I mentioned that last hour, they filed a subpoena for additional testimony from Don Trump Jr. But there's something a little off about how the story is actually being represented. There's been zero official verification. So, look, what they want when they do this, and this, you know, obviously it's speculation, but it's kind of shown up before. They say they're going to subpoena Donald Trump Jr. And then um, leaks start coming out. It's as if they're activating leaks. Now he's a private citizen, Don Jr. is. He's already been cleared by Mueller after a two-year investigation. He's done 27 hours of testimony in front of various committees in total. Nine of those were in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee. And there was an agreement between... Don Jr. and the committee that he would only have to come in and testify a single time as willing, as long as he was willing to stay for as long as they wanted. So he did that. He continues to cooperate by producing documents. He's willing to answer written questions, but no lawyer would ever agree to allow their client to participate in what is an obvious PR stunt from a so-called Republican senator who's too cowardly to stand up to his boss. And the rest of the resistance Democrats on the committee, you might be wondering who's who's on the committee. Well, the Senate Intelligence Committee is Mark Warner from Virginia. He's the vice chairman. Richard Burr of North Carolina is the chairman. And he's the Republican, which is kind of interesting. And then you've got James Risch from Ohio, Marco Rubio, Florida, Susan Collins from Maine, Roy Blunt from Missouri, James Lankford from Oklahoma, Tom Cotton from Arkansas, John Cornyn from Texas. And then the Democrats are Dianne Feinstein from California, Ron Wyden from Oregon, Martin Heinrich from New Mexico, Angus King from Maine, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, and Kamala Harris from California. So that little group of individuals are the ones who claim that they want to see Don Jr. back before their committee. This, of course, is nothing but an extension of the nastiness that we've seen directed towards the Trump family. And it's also a, a way that they can try to seek out and find something else that they can latch on to help justify their continuing. It's just like a an obsession. I've seen so many memes over the past couple of days. Some of them have been tweeted to me by friends or, or text by friends, where it's a picture of someone from a couple hundred years ago dressed in that kind of outfits that George Washington used to wear. And they've animated just their arm with like a stick or a, a you know, a weapon in it and they're just beating a horse that's already laid on the ground. <laughs> so it's an animated drawing. And this is to facilitate basically more spying. And I love how now the term surveillance has become de jour. Like people are regularly running around saying, well, it was surveillance, as if surveillance is anything more than, you know, fancy spying, legitimized spying. It's spying. So here he is, he Representative Jordan agrees. He says it's called spying. The FBI did it against Trump. It's number
1: two. I don't know if the FBI went after President Trump in six ways, but I sure know they went after him in two ways. And the first one is the now famous dossier on October 21st, 2016. The FBI used one party's opposition research document as the basis to go to a secret court to get a warrant to spy on the other party's campaign that happened. Democrat National Committee, the Clinton campaign, paid Perkins Coie law firm who hired Fusion GPS, who then hired a foreigner, Christopher Steele, who did what? Talked to Russians and put together this salacious, unverified document that became the basis to get a warrant to spy on the Trump campaign. They did it. And when they went to the court, they didn't tell him important things like who paid for it. They didn't tell him that Christopher Steele had already told the FBI and the Justice Department that he was, quote, desperate to stop Trump. And they didn't tell the court that Christopher Steele had been fired by the FBI because he's out talking to the press. They did that. And second, just last Thursday, just last Thursday, New York Times story, FBI sent investigator posing as an assistant to meet with the Trump aide in 2016. FBI sent someone in, pretending to be somebody else, to talk with George Papadopoulos, who was with the Trump campaign. You know what they call that? You know what they call that? It's called spying. They did it. They did it. They did it twice and who knows how much more. And what I know is Bill Barr has said he's going to get to the bottom of it. And think about the term he used again. This is important. Political surveillance. The In the United you know, States of America, I will not yield. I love the way he was like, will the gentleman yield? I will not yield.
3: ha ha ha! <laughs> they want him to stop talking and, and 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 give a question. And I tell you what, I've had the same feeling like sometimes when Maisie Hirano is going on one of her inane tirades, I'm like, geez, do you have a question? Um, but if she can do it, then so can he. OK, if if uh, Kamala Harris can go on those wild, you know, just it's just like a speech she wrote and she just sits there and goes on and on and on. Then why can't he, you know? It's not different strokes for different folks. It's the same rules for everybody. They're all in the same area. They're all in the same arena. So go ahead, go to it. Uh, You know, uh, just get to it. That's that's all I've got. Just get to it. So now James Comey is back, and and again, I renew my objection to James Comey being out talking because he was fired from the FBI. He is not a good source of information. Because he was fired and also because he doesn't represent any particular faction uh, of, of honest dealing. We know that he did the little memos. We know that he leaked a memo as a leaker and someone who lied, someone who exonerated Hillary Clinton, even though he knew she should have been prosecuted. And as someone who was fired by the president, how does he get to continue to contribute to the national conversation as an expert? He is not worthy. So he's back out. He's popped out of his mole hole. Republicans, not Obama, have everlasting shame for Russian interference response. Really? I'm sorry. What is he talking about? He said, it's not Barack Obama that should have notified the American public that the Russians were interfering. He said, oh, Obama did nothing um, wrong. It's, it's, here, here's his quote. I'm, I'm not going to paraphrase it. Here's the quote from Comey. That's a hard question. President Obama faced a very difficult choice. The number one goal for the Russians is to damage our, quote, democracy, end quote, because we don't have a democracy, back to his quote, and undermine faith in our electoral process. If he makes an announcement that the Russians are coming for the election, has he just accomplished their goal for them? And is he giving Donald Trump an excuse to say Obama fixed the election? So I get why he struggled with it. He did a very sensible thing. He tried to get the bipartisan leaders of Congress jointly to tell the American people this is going on. And in my view, to their everlasting shame, the Republicans refused. Now, here's what I I have to say about that. First off, he was the president of the United States. And if he'd wanted to, he could have come out on his own as president and approached the podium in one of the beautiful gardens of the White House and said, look, the Russians are trying to interfere with the election. They're not going to, I'm not going to let them, but they're trying. That was his other option besides keeping his lips pressed firmly together. But instead of weighing what he was going to say or what he wasn't going to say, perhaps Obama could have put a stop to it. You're telling me that the same intelligence agencies that surveilled the Trump campaign and then the president and all of his family members, the same ones that sent people all over the world to try to collect dirt on Trump, they couldn't do anything to stop the Russians? That's the kind of incompetence that the Democrats will bring back to the White House if they're ever allowed a foothold there again. Utterly ridiculous. All right, when we get back, we are going to have our guest for this hour, Kenny Stein of the American Energy Alliance. Keep it here.
0: Like, I wanted to have the abortion because I was trying to hide a situation.
4: When a young mom in crisis walks into a preborn pregnancy center, she's welcomed with open arms and given love, support, and a free ultrasound to meet her unborn baby. This young woman not only chose life for her baby, but heard the message of Jesus Christ and was comforted from the guilt and pain that plagued her. Preborn centers lead the nation in providing free ultrasounds. When an abortion-minded woman sees her baby on ultrasound, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. And 100% of your sponsorship goes towards saving babies. To find out more, go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Or dial pound 250 and say the keyword, baby. That's pound 250 and say baby your love can save a life.
5: This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. One of the criticisms of the claims of human-caused climate change is that the theory predicts everything. Now, you might think that makes it a good theory. Actually, when you have a theory that predicts everything and cannot be falsified, that makes it a bad theory. In fact, it's easy to find examples of contradictory claims all being attributed to climate change. But let me give you one example. Sharks fascinate us, probably going back decades to the movie Jaws. We seem fascinated by them as illustrated by the popularity of Shark Week on television. So what do scientists predict about sharks and climate change? One article from a few years ago in The Guardian explains that the surge in fatal shark attacks is blamed on global warming. The article does acknowledge that some of the increase may also be due to human activity and the abundance of seals, but the primary reason for the surge in attacks is climate change. A more recent article in The Independent predicts that global warming could actually make sharks smaller and less aggressive. The argument is that warmer waters and increased CO2 could make it more difficult for sharks to catch prey. A third article comes from scientists in Australia who believe that a new hybrid shark just discovered is a sign of global warming. They argue the two species mating is due to climate change. Just about every phenomenon in nature is being explained by climate change. More snow is due to climate change. Less snow is due to climate change. More wildfires are due to climate change. Fewer fires are due to climate change. You will find lots of contradictory examples all attributed to climate change. So when it comes to sharks, many of these claims sound less like science and more like science fiction. Sometimes the claims sound more like the science fiction disaster movies like Sharknado. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view.
0: For a free copy of Kirby's booklet, A Biblical View on Socialism, go to viewpoints.info slash socialism. That's viewpoints.info slash socialism. Welcome back to Stacey on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Hey,
3: everybody. Welcome back to the program. Head on over to staceyontheright.com and subscribe at Stacey on the Right on Twitter and Instagram. It's my pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. It's Kenny Stein of the American Energy Alliance. Kenny, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about this. I every time I hear Congress expand tax credits, I get upset. I get mad. It's like April fifteenth all over again. Somebody save me. Um, my husband will always say, "Oh no, we I, we already know this is a bad idea." In other words, don't get, don't rant, don't rave. Um, what exactly are they proposing here with the Drive America Forward Act?
6: So this was this is a proposal that was just released a couple of weeks ago, and it's designed to expand an existing tax credit. There's already a tax credit uh, for purchases of electric vehicles. It's up to seven thousand five hundred dollars per car, but it only applies to the first two hundred thousand cars that a given Company like GM or Ford that they make. The idea being that you know the when it was passed, it was like, oh, we want to help electric cars get started. We'll we'll give them a tax credit for the first few, and then after that, the company has to stand on its own. But of course, lo and behold, here we are a few years later, and a couple companies, GM and Tesla so far, have already hit that 200,000 car cap, and so they they come back to federal government, come back to the trough and ask for more. They want their they want cars subsidized. Uh, you know, off into the future. So that's what the, this bill that was proposed a couple of weeks is uh, trying to do is just expand that tax credit.
3: Okay, so help me out here. They already have one for 200,000 vehicles and is that tax credit doing what it's, because it's supposed to accomplish something. The tax credit is supposed to incentivize more Americans to buy those kinds of cars or what? Right, well,
6: the the original idea was that, you know, uh, electric vehicles are more expensive. Even today, they're still more expensive. And the idea was that you know it's, it helps promote the purchase of those cars initially to get the technology started, and then in the future, electric vehicles can compete with internal combustion, you know, on their own merits. Now, as we've seen, as I just said, the prices of electric vehicles are still higher, which is why they're now coming back. Oh no, we still need these tax credits because otherwise, electric vehicles aren't competitive which that sort of begs the question, then, you know, why are we incentivizing something that people don't want to buy?
3: (laughs) (laughs) So help me out here. Why, why don't people want to, uh, to buy them? Because I, I I don't have one. I've never wanted one, but I, I do understand that sometimes you, you just don't want something because you don't know anything about it or you haven't heard enough about it. Um, Right.
6: Well, it's it depends. There's a couple different kinds of cars. One there's there's the there's a hybrid that's a plug-in electric and with a backup gasoline engine. And then there's also all electric vehicles. And so there's a it's really an ideological push by some folks on the environmental left to make all cars electric so that there's basically to try and eliminate any sort of emissions from the tailpipes of cars. Even though let's be honest, modern cars have, are extremely clean. But this this is an ideological movement to eliminate internal combustion cars entirely. The problem is is that when you get to an all electric car is that the, the the phrase that's coined for it is range anxiety because there's you know, there's only a certain distance you can go on that battery and then once you hit that point, it's not like in a gasoline car, you know, you run out of gas, you stop at a gas station, you fill up and you're back on your way in, you know, five minutes with an electric car though you've got to plug it in and it takes a long time to recharge so it's one thing if you're going back and forth to work you know you get to work you can plug it in you drive back home you get home you can plug it in that's fine but if you you know if you want to go on a road trip go visit someone a, you know a few cities away electric car is a problem because there's no there's no gas stations for electric cars and even the the pot there's the it, it, theoretically, there you could have like fast chargers to try and charge cars, but that stuff doesn't really exist yet, and it's not completely clear that it can really charge a car all that quickly, you know, by the side of the road.
3: Okay, and and from what I understand, the original like charging of cars, it was meant to be that you drive the car in a very limited radius near your home, you know, you work very close to your home, your groceries are very close to your home, and you only drive to those couple of places, and then you drive back home, and you plug the car in, and it charges overnight. But right. if you're on a road trip, like you've described, I mean, we've we've done road trips across the country so many times, and what happens is when you're stopping for gas, you do end up stopping for longer than like just the amount of time it takes to pump the gas, but it's just so people can stretch their legs, use the restroom, grab a snack from the gas station or something out of the trunk, and then you're back on the road again that's not enough time to charge an electric vehicle because uh, they have multiple batteries inside the hood of the car.
6: Right. Yeah, right. When you're, start, when you're talking stopping on a road trip, you're thinking, you know, 15, 20 minutes. But, you know, we're not talking hours to try and recharge your car. And then we're ta- and the other problem is, is that you've then got to stop again and stop again, whereas on a road trip, you know, with a gasoline car, you choose when you want to stop. You know, if you, you, know, if you have a time crunch and you need to get somewhere quickly, you forego a couple stops. But in an electric car, you don't have that flexibility. So that's really the problem is that right now electric cars, you know, if you're using it, as you said, if you're using it just for sitting driving, if all you do is you run a few errands and then you go back home or you go back and forth to work, it, it might make sense. But it's not it's not something that people who, basically people who live outside of cities, it's not really a practical option for them. Oh,
3: oh certainly not. Because for, for people, even so, um, I find that the number of places that I drive to on a regular basis like every single week with regularity it has collapsed down to like a seven mile radius and when I have to go outside of that I actually think to myself okay how long is it going to take me to get?" like it takes some extra planning Um, and that's just because we tend to find the closest grocery store find the closest gas station you know all the things that you're looking to do you find the closest ones and you do those so in theory these chargeable vehicles could be really fantastic. But when you look at the reality of millions of Americans living in rural areas where they have much larger drives to get to anything and they do those drives on a regular basis and they also drive larger vehicles, trucks, you know, working vehicles where they can hitch their their livestock trailer to it, they can haul wood and and anything else they need to carry. These electric vehicles are not built to to operate these big heavy-duty trucks and kind of work vehicles.
6: Right it's it's certainly right now it's, these are niche products and probably will be for at least the foreseeable future and that's what you see in the purchase patterns even of the cars that are bought now it's normally the people who are buying them are wealthier people and it's like the third car in their house so mm. it's, and it's also often it's mostly people in California too so these wealthy folks in California you know if they're going back to for, back and forth to work in LA or something they'll use the electric car for that but then they have gasoline cars for when they're doing other things that are, they need something that's more reliable that they don't have, they don't have to worry about charging or they you get that flexibility that you get from a gasoline powered car.
3: And then you know, so I think it's worth pointing out, Kenny, that when you mentioned just briefly a second ago about um, the efficiency as far as like, Newer American cars, or cars in our country, they they don't have to be American made, but they're, most modern cars are very low emissions. They don't ha, you don't see big puffs of smoke coming out of the tailpipe and all that, but they're also really gas efficient. Like I I've been astounded. We rented a uh, a hybrid, I think it was a Tahoe XL, and that was the biggest car. I've ever had on like a long-term basis. It was so big. I didn't want to drive it. We rented it to go down on vacation because my car had been rear-ended and I had the minivan. So we couldn't drive the minivan. So we rent this big, huge Tahoe XL and we have three kids. So it's five of us in there and all of our stuff going down to the beach. And that thing was a hybrid. And so we were still able to get this amazing gas mileage, even though the car was huge. It's like this huge thing. We drove it all the way down there. We only had to stop for gas. Well, one of the times we stopped because we really needed gas and the other time it was just like a bathroom break, but that's a like a 12-hour drive that we did on two tanks of gas. Um that's that would have been unheard of 20 years ago. So I I just don't understand that the push to try to make every vehicle run on batteries when we've become so fuel efficient.
6: Right. Well, that's that's the interesting and that's why I say some of this is is an ideological push because uh very new gasoline or hybrid cars they are extremely fuel efficient and there's very very little actual pollution like you know nitrogen oxides or any of the things the uh, ozone stuff that causes smog new cars have emit very very limited pollutants and a lot of that is due to regulation you know I'm not anti regulation uh, in mm. all places so this is you know this is these were good changes that were made through regulation but we now have cars that really don't pollute new internal combustion engine cars. But that's why you see this new movement that the problem is no longer pollutants or smog or ozone. The problem is now carbon dioxide, which, you know, carbon dioxide is a byproduct of every human activity. You know, when we exhale, we exhale carbon dioxide. So internal combustion engine cars still produce carbon dioxide because that's the natural part of burning energy. So this is now, now that carbon dioxide has been declared a problem, the only solution to that is supposedly electric vehicles, because that's the one transportation option that doesn't emit any carbon dioxide. The irony, though, of course, is that if you have an electric vehicle that you're charging from the main electricity power lines, most of the power that's generated in the United States is still from fossil fuels. It's mostly natural gas and coal, which is over 60 percent, 70 percent. So that electric car is still being powered; is still emitting carbon dioxide. It's just not happening at the tailpipe. It's happening at the the power station nearby. So it's got the it's more of a ideological virtue signaling in favor of electric vehicles rather than a true, you know, environmental benefit. Let's put it that way.
3: Because you have not really eliminated, <laughs> <You haven't> eliminated. <laughs> right? Exactly. It's just
6: being moved to a different place.
3: <laughs> <laughs> What's so funny about that is that, um, a lot of the things that, that, uh, have been a problem, like it, it we don't think about this, but when cars were first invented, because it, sometimes I, it's almost laughable what a car really was in the beginning. It was like a glorified horse drawn carriage, but with an engine because most of them were open at the top, you know, so you couldn't even use them all the time or you could, but you're just freezing to death, just like you wouldn't open horse drawn carriage. They were, the engines were, like an outsized amount of the car. There basically wasn't a second row. It was like a two-seater with a place where you could throw a purse. And they were very like finicky. That You could use it a few days and then it would be broken and have to be fixed and then use it again. And the worst of it is you had to stop for gas all the time because it just didn't hold very much. The engine was huge and so the gas tank was really tiny. And so all of the things that a person from that era would say This is a cool new innovation, but it's really wonky and it's inefficient. It doesn't work for me. Uh, The horse is still better. All of that's been eliminated. Now our cars talk to us. I love the way they have an attitude when you don't buckle in and you try to put the car in reverse or something. Or I I rented a car the last time I was down in Tupelo, Mississippi, and it was a basic four-door sedan. But it had a huge iPad-sized display that I could touch. And it also monitored anytime I touched the lane. Um, if I moved to the dotted lines or to the outer line, it would ask me in a screen inside the dashboard if I was feeling tired and needed to pull over and take a rest. So, you know, I always I always marvel at that kind of stuff. And it's cool I I don't need it, but certainly it is technological innovation. But all of this stuff that has made cars really fun and and super convenient now, like being able to drive around all week long without filling up your tank, I would never have to, I would never opt to drive a car intentionally and pay for it that I had to plug in every night because I when I drive into the garage, I'm not used to having to plug anything in. So I would forget. And then the next day I wouldn't be able to use my car. So I would never want to use a car like that.
6: Yeah. Well, and that's there's a reason, back when cars were first invented, there were there were electric vehicles back then. But the reason the internal combustion engine won out is because precisely that flexibility that we've been talking about, that you can drive in any direction for any amount of time, and when you start running low on gas, you can stop, refill in a couple minutes, and continue on your way. And that, that sort of flexibility, it's so, gasoline, oil is, a very dense store of energy and it's very easy to move it around so you can position it everywhere. There's no, you don't have to build, you know, when you start talking about car charging stations out on freeways, you have to build high-powered power lines to all these locations where you're going to charge cars. That's a whole huge amount of new infrastructure that all that has to be maintained. It's expensive. So, and that's just to attempt to get close to the kind of flexibility that internal combustion engines already provide. So it's really, it's trying to it's trying to reinvent the wheel, frankly. We have a very an excellent, amazing transportation option right now in the form of internal combustion engines powered by gasoline. So this idea of moving to all electric, it's really, again, I'll say, as I've said a couple times now, it's really, it's an ideological fixation rather than a real need for our society or for practical reasons.
3: Yeah. And, and I'll just say, because you, you've summed that up perfectly, I'll just say it's another, to me, it feels like a distraction. It feels like, hey, let's talk about you know building more of these stations, which honestly, what you've just described, I hadn't even considered how many of those would have to be around because gas stations are everywhere. And I'm used to seeing them. So they kind of fade into the background, unless it's one of those, um, those gas stations down in Texas that they're bumpies or burpees (laughs) buckies oh my goodness so unless it's a buckies i'm not really noticing it because i'm just so used to seeing gas stations and when i when it when i consider what you just said that first of all you got to buy the land from all these people who own the land next to the highways you got to build these huge stations and the and the power lines to them are going to be so ugly you know what i mean we already have lots of power lines across the country imagine like you'd have to multiply that times a hundred fold for these charging stations and then it's all the people who one of your batteries is bad. So you've charged the whole car, but it's not working. So you've got to have mechanics and replacement batteries that you can buy. And it just sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. A total. nightmare. Well,
6: and the, and the thing to the, to point out too, is that this, this is something that electric vehicle advocates don't think about is that it even the possibility of a fast charging station that requires a direct main power line. Like this is not just your regular outlet that you have at home. That you know, that's the kind of thing that if you're going to charge your car overnight, that that kind of thing can work. But if you're talking about trying to rapidly charge a car, that's that's a major infrastructure investment with the specialty power lines and specialty connections that that you can't just you can't just hook a local gas station up to that. It requires new infrastructure. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> that's never going to happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? I feel eminently informed after speaking to you, Kenny. Kenny Stein, American Energy Alliance, thank you for your time today. Have a fantastic weekend.
6: Thanks for having me.
3: All right, talk to you again soon. We will be back with more Stacey on the Right, right after this.
0: She was a baby girl left abandoned on a doorstep in China. Our friends met her in that orphanage that had saved her life, and they adopted her. And believe me, she's not an orphan anymore. There are a lot of folks who have felt orphaned for much of their lives, either left behind or left alone. Maybe another you know feeling. Well, just like that little girl, someone went a long way to get you, someone who chose you. He's adopted a lot of spiritual orphans into his family, and he's ready to adopt you too. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. We've been cut off from the heavenly father by choosing to run a life that he was supposed to run. So we feel spiritually fatherless. But God's Son came all the way from heaven to that awful cross to pay for your sins and give you the chance to be His. You can belong to Him by saying, Jesus, I'm yours. It's something we'd love to help you do. Call us at 888-NEED-HIM or go to chataboutjesus.com. You will never feel orphaned again.
6: Hi, this is Steve Tiber with Eight Days of Hope. We've been all over the country helping disaster victims who lose everything.
0: It's truly a blessing. I really don't have the words to express.
6: And yet they see a glimmer of hope when a volunteer shows up.
0: Building the home, that's the second reason we're here. The number one reason is to share the gospel and and give them hope. It's
4: everything that's right in America. I mean, it really represents the, the best that we have to offer.
6: That's one of the main reasons for doing it is being able to be the hands and feet of Jesus and coming out and working with so many wonderful volunteers. I just feel like it's important in this day and age to teach a child uh, how to serve. Please go to our website, 8daysofhope.com, and click on Get Involved, submit your email address, and the next time we go anywhere with a disaster, we'll invite you to
2: come along as well.
4: I love coming in the job room because you can see these pieces of paper, they aren't just a piece of paper. It's right. a right. family that's hurting, and it's a gospel opportunity. You
2: know, I just thank God, you know, for this moment. I mean, I'll be back in my home, and I know it's going to be awesome. Come love
5: others with
4: 8 Days of Hope.
0: Media Minute with Howard Kurtz. Media Mysteries for 400. He's drawing flack from the pundits for shattering records on Jeopardy! Question? who is James Holzhauer? Why are people beating up on the Las Vegas sports gamblers won about a million and a half dollars on the game show? Here's Chuck Lane in the Washington Post. Do you not see this guy as a menace? The only thing more troubling than his grinning relentless march to victory is that millions celebrate it. Well, Chuck admits that he finished third on Jeopardy! years ago, so maybe he's a sore loser. Look, I thought this guy would be arrogant when I tuned in. He seems like a kind of an awkward dad who loves to gamble and who's really good at this. And by the way, he knows a lot of the. Amps is a lot of really obscure stuff. I guess the fact some people saying he's kind of draining the mystery because he's annihilating his opponents. But look, this is how it's played. Some people are good at the buzzer. Some people are good at certain categories. Holzhauer seems to have figured this out. I don't think we should denigrate him for being a good contestant. With your Media Minute, Howie Kurtz, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right
2: on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. I think we ought to put it to rest. Mueller spent two years on this. He interviewed hundreds of people. He reached the conclusion there was certainly no collusion on the part of the uh, president's part. He brought no charges on obstruction. They indicted a number of Russians. It was clear what the Russians are trying to do. He pointed it out uh, to us. What else do we need to know? It's time to move on. That's a decision for the attorney general, and I think there is already an uh, inspector general investigation going on of how the investigation was initiated. These uh, inspector generals in each department are genuinely independent people. I understand he's going to report at the end of May. And so we'll get an answer to the question of how this whole investigation uh, began from the IG and the Justice Department.
3: Mm. So, yeah, it is time to move on. It's time to move on. And speaking of moving on, Adam Schiff has actually threatened to hold the Trump administration in, quote, inherent contempt. He wants to launch inherent contempt charges against the Trump administration. This is House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff, who has been kind of quiet of late, has popped back up out of his molehole to say that he's the House is considering revisiting its inherent contempt powers that would allow it to fine members of the Trump administration who failed to answer their subpoenas. And um, is, this is fascinating, fascinating. He says the fines, if he levied them, could be as much as $25,000 a day um, per instance. Now, what he's saying is that this is even faster than an impi- impeachment proceeding. Um Congress's inherent power of contempt that was utilized up until the 1930s is a system by which Congress holds their own judicial proceedings in the Congress, like having a little mini trial in the Congress, and they hold people in contempt and responsible and compel their production without even going to court. Now, it used to be that they imprisoned people, but they could also fine them $25,000 a day until they comply or some other number. And they feel like it may be an even swifter remedy if they need to embark on it. And they say they may have to. Now, you might have heard Nancy Pelosi earlier in the week say that, you know, we do have a little jail down here in Congress. We have a little t- tiny jail down here in the basement. And I thought, you know, wow, she's really on, on she's like teeter-tottering on the edge. She's on the edge, y'all. Well, apparently she's right. There is a teeny tiny little jail there. And if they try to revive this something they used back in the 1930s, I could see just in my mind, obviously, um, you know, supposing that the Trump administration could go straight to, they could use the DOJ to go straight to the Supreme court and basically invalidate that. And, and I don't know that they would want to do that or what are the, what are the pros and cons of that? But Congress is a co-equal branch. Nancy Pelosi says she thinks that Congress is supreme and that's fine and cute and nice um, and I imagine in her office, she probably has Hello Kitty dolls and um, a tiny pig collection and all that stuff. And that's awesome. But it's actually three co-equal branches. So they can demand all they want, but I'm not sure if they have the right to actually find people. House Judiciary Committee voted to hold Attorney General William Barr in contempt on Wednesday because he was a no-show at last week's hearing and his refusal to f- provide the full unredacted Mueller report. Barr and his allies have tried to explain that releasing the entire document would require him to break the law. Now, other Democrats have said the words inherent contempt, so it must have been an email that went out on their listserv. Um, and it's John Yu, who's a professor at the University of California, Berkeley. He's a former official in the George W. Bush administration, and he said Mr. Trump's approach was novel and dangerous. The thing that's unusual is the blanket refusal. It would be extraordinary if the president actually were to try and stop all congressional testimony on subpoenaed issues. It would actually be unprecedented if there was a complete ban. He says he's treating Congress like they're the Chinese or local labor union working on a Trump building. Wow. So, you know, they love to bring up these references to President Trump's business career, but that's not what he's doing. He's saying that this is a a big, huge witch hunt. It's a continuation of the original witch hunt. They didn't get what they wanted, so they're continuing on. Um, Former Senator Carl Levin, Democrat from Michigan, wrote an entire article about how Congress should take advantage of the authority. And Representative Devin Nunez, who's who's Republican from California, had the chance to respond in real time to Schiff's new threat and chalked it up to the Democrats' now two-year Russian collusion goose chase. They've been chasing Russian ghosts in the closet, Nunez declared, and they'll always end up in a rabbit hole interesting turn of phrase there. So yeah, there it is. This is, this is, you know how President Obama loved to say, that's not who we are. Well, this is who they are now. <laughs> so in other news, um, you had 2020 Democrat Cory Booker saying abortion is health care. He said that specifically after the heartbeat has been detected, it's still health care. And, uh, you know, media types are urging the Democrats to put Barr behind bars. They literally want him jailed for simply being the attorney general after the Mueller report was released and it didn't give them the results they wanted. So not only is it not a constitutional crisis, but what we're seeing, honestly, is that some of the individuals who are really egging this thing on, it's like sport. Um, And we all know what that's like. You've been to a basketball game or a football game or a hockey game, whatever you've been, especially if you've got kids, you've been to some sporting event with your kids and you've seen how rooting the kids on or rooting for your team or your side or your colors can become almost, it's like another person in you comes out. You part of you comes out that you, maybe you don't remember that part of yourself or you've never met that part of yourself. But when you get to rooting and being on your team's side, it can become an obsessive type of a, 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 an overture where you're just, you're moving through it in ways that just make it so obvious that you're unable to let it go. And you're still upset and mad about it hours later. But the, the, the referees made bad calls or, you know, the other team was violent or, you know, what, whatever the case may be. And that's what this looks like to me with the Democrats. Um, and it's completely contrived. House Judiciary Chairman Gerald Nadler said, we've talked for a long time about approaching a constitutional crisis. We are now in it, end quote. No, we're not. We are not in a constitutional crisis. Nancy Pelosi said, because the administration has decided they're not going to honor their oath of office, yes, we are in a constitutional crisis. No, no, we're not. It's actually a figment of their imagination that has been completely stood up and engineered by Nadler and his fellow Democrats, look, the redaction-free version, it's 99.9% redaction-free, is available to Nadler, Pelosi, tons of other Democrats in leadership. If you're on a committee, it's available to you. In the version supplied by the Justice Department, the sum total of the redaction in Volume 2 of the Mueller report is two full lines of text and seven partial lines of text. It's sitting in a secure room in the house. So it's, it's not only available, it's accessible, meaning you don't have to get in your car and have your aide drive you 25 or 30 minutes outside of Washington, D.C. You don't even have to leave the building where you work. It's right there. They're avoiding looking at it because they don't want to undermine their case for demanding more disclosures. Because let's just, let's, let's just have it out right now. We know what's happening here. It's powerful when you can say to yourself, you know what? Let's draft a subpoena. And then you draft it up and you look at the wording and it just puffs your little chest up. And they're sitting out there like those little puffin birds with their chest puffed up. And they're just feeling so awesome about themselves. And they're looking around and they're like, you know what? You know what's awesome? Us. We're subpoenaing stuff. And they can't refuse us. They have to reply to our congressional subpoenas instead of taking care of the business of the American people. So Justice Department spokeswoman Carrie Kupek has also spoken about this issue. She added that Attorney General William Barr could not comply with the House Judiciary Committee subpoena. Without violating the law, court rules, court orders, and without threatening the independence of the department's prosecutorial functions. As far as I can tell, no Democrat has actually rebuffed that statement. No Democrat has come out publicly and said, that's not true. You know know how quick they are to say, ah, that's not true. They're not even hiding the fact that they want him to break the law. Now, Nadler says that releasing all grand jury information has occurred in every similar investigation in the past, and that is a ball-faced lie. USA Today tried to make the case saying that in investigations into President Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton, judges ordered the release of grand jury evidence because the public interest outweighed witness privacy, but in both cases, the House was pursuing impeachment of those presidents. So they got that information after they brought the impeachment charges, not before. And this is all information that is, is available for anybody to look up and find out. It's not something that's partisan or hidden away on some right-wing website underneath a Bible with, with a gun next to it. This is all information that anybody can listen to, check out, read. You know how you can have your phone read an article to you since you, you know you're driving, but you still want to read the article. There is open access to this information. Not only can Americans find it out, but every sitting member of Congress also knows this information that I'm sharing with you right now. And even then... During the impeachment proceedings of Clinton and Nixon, the release of the grand jury evidence was considered an extraordinary exception. The Congressional Research Service has reported that the long-established rule, quote, the long-established rule of grand jury secrecy is enshrined in the Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 6E, which provides that government attorneys and the jurors themselves, among others, must not disclose a matter occurring before the grand jury, close quote. The Congressional... Research service goes on to say that no exception to the general rule of secrecy explicitly authorizes disclosure of grand jury matters to Congress, either by agreement or pursuant to a congressional subpoena. In other words, they're little subpoenas, which are mean and nasty. They're like little vipers. They have no sting when they're sent. And the thing that they want to disclose is grand jury matters. Matters of the grand jury remain sealed. It is not Congress's purview to review them. Even in the case where Congress is demanding an exception on access to grand jury proceedings as a part of the impeachment action, the Congressional Research Service report explains a committee seeking court-authorized disclosure on the basis of this exception must establish a particularized need for the materials at issue, which requires a showing that the need outweighs the public interest in secrecy. In other words, the people who participated in the grand jury proceedings and the evidence that was gathered through their testimony and other supporting documents that they themselves were subpoenaed to provide, those matters must remain secret to protect the process by which these investigations can occur. And if that is not done, then there is no person who would willingly participate in grand jury proceedings. Because they would know at that point that providing that evidence would expose them to further scrutiny by their enemies. So Nadler, interestingly enough, has not actually shown any particularized need for the data, has he? He hasn't even tried to cook one up. You would think that he would get with Kamala Harris and Cory Booker and all the other lawyers and they would sit down and they would come up with a particularized need. And then if they could at least present that, it would be a much more uh, the request would seem more reasonable, it would seem more viable or, or it doesn't make any sense right now because without the particularized need, it just seems like they want something that they've been told they can't have, and haven't we all been there with one of our kids where the kid didn't really want anything and then they see something and they say they want it, and then you say no, and then it's a battle of wills it has nothing to do with the actual item they could live or die without it, obviously because It's something small. But they've now decided they want to like throw down about it. And you as the parent have to win that because, you know, rule of order and all that good jazz, parenting 101, etc. And so for these people, they're not children, they're grown adults, and they are refusing to even participate in the process by which they could make it possible to get the information that they claim they need so badly. They are also downplaying any plans to impeach President Trump because... It is po- – It is. polling shows it's extremely unpopular to impeach President Trump right now. The Democrats don't have the wherewithal in their party. Many individuals who on the left are sick of this story. They're so sick of it, they're no longer watching CNN. So this isn't an imperialistic administration. And if you look at the DOJ, which uh, – The Justice Department has plenty of people in it that hate Donald Trump. They have a lot of career people there who've served under multiple administrations on both sides of the political aisle. And so they have, you know, a little bit more, eh, you know, there's some swamp there, but it's, it's also there are some people who just work there who they're there for the job that they do. So the Justice Department actually weighed in on Congress's access to grand jury testimony three decades ago in response to a bill that would have made it easier for lawmakers to get their hands on grand jury materials. And way back then, 30 years ago, because here's what they said, because the executive alone is entrusted with the power to enforce the laws, the executive alone should make the day-to-day decisions as to whether the release of law enforcement materials to Congress would interfere with its prosecutorial discretion. Independent access by Congress to grand jury materials without the consent of the Department of Justice would seriously endanger grand jury secrecy and thereby weaken the grand jury as an institution. What more can we say? The witch hunt continues. But not for us, because we're going into the weekend oh so nicely. I'm so glad to see it. Wonderful week, wonderful weekend to you. God bless you from the heartland citizens. Enjoy. Talk to you on Monday.